Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. Welcome to Weird Studies. I'm J.F. Martel. According to Jorge Luis Borges, the most astonishing thing about dreams isn't their psychic function, the biological mechanism that undergirds them, or even their nature, but the simple fact that they exist at all. What are they? Why do they happen? This episode is all about dreams. More specifically, it's about the American psychologist James Hillman's great 1979 work, The Dream and the Underworld. More than anything else out there, Hillman's seminal meditation refrains from imposing any rational structure on the phenomenon of dreaming. Instead, it invites us to revel with awe in the fact of dreaming as an integral part of our mysterious reality. Dreams, of course, were a favorite topic of ours as early as episodes 12 and 13, respectively on the films of Rodney Asher and the philosophy of Heraclitus. More recently, in October of last year, Phil and I exchanged letters on the Weird Studies Patreon about a dream Phil had, a dream that gained special significance in light of the events that have since altered the world. I quote selectively from Phil's letter. I had a nightmare a few nights ago, a real swinger of a nightmare, as Frank Sinatra might say. It had no narrative to speak of, only a single terrifying image. I am looking through a doorway at a dining room, in an ordinary-looking house. It doesn't look like my house, just some generic suburban sort of place, though maybe a bit nicer than average. There's a big wooden table at the center. Hovering above the table is a, what to call it, an entity of some kind, an intelligence, though not necessarily alive in the usual sense. It looks like an electron microscope photo of a virus, a ball with spikes or tendrils sticking out of it. I was scared of this thing, It didn't communicate with me, but I had a sense of terrible danger, that this thing was going to do something. And then it did something almost indescribable. I mean, I saw it in the dream, but I can't tell you exactly what I saw. The spikes softened and grew longer, losing their sharp geometrical appearance and snaking down off the table. There was something horrible in this motion, the virus deliquest, and as it did, the rainbow prism tentacles seemed to spread and penetrate into the very matter of the room. Their many colors swirled and took on the colors of everything they touched. No, they became everything they touched. It was like invasion of the body snatchers, but it wasn't just people who were being replicated, it was all of reality. I ran, but I realized the futility of running, for I could never escape this thing. I had already turned into it, or it had already turned into me. It's not enough to say that it transformed the world. It became the world. It replaced it. Until a moment ago, it was the world just as we experience it. A world of various things. Tables, walls, carpets, etc. And then the virus had infected it. And all the tables and walls and carpets became what the virus was. Intelligent. The world became mind, and the mind was the virus. The last image of the dream was of an endless procession of sad, grotesque, 
Morris Sendak-looking animals trudging through a life now made meaningless. Our discussion at the time did not, of course, consider the possibility that just such a virus would be threatening to do just that a few months down the road. Perhaps looking back at this dream now can yield new insights. The microbe that has thrown the planet into upheaval is just one part of the entity that is the new coronavirus, its physical material part. Minuscule though it may be, this tiny organism casts an enormous shadow, and that shadow is also part of what it is. It's also part of its nature. The shadow, or the image, as Hillman would say, isn't physical but psychic, imaginal, and most importantly, intelligent. It is a denizen of the underworld, an archetype. As such, it is infinitely more contagious than its physical manifestation because it is already in each of us. We see it manifest concretely out there in the fear, the panic, and despair that many are feeling right now. It's in succumbing to the shadow that we risk falling prey to the nihilism that Phil witnessed at the end of his dream. But if we stick with this metaphor of an imaginal shadow accompanying this physical virus, then we need to consider the need to locate the light that allows us to see this shadow. What is this light? For me, it's the implicit affirmation of meaning, value, and purpose that is the source of all our anguish. To quote the French philosopher Paul Ricard, to meditate on anguish is, I believe, to use its hard schooling in order to explore and reachieve the primary affirmation, more primordial than all anguish which would lay claim to be original. The thing about the virus is that it wants us to think that it is all that matters, that it gets the final word. The truth, however, is that it is just one archetype among many. On the one hand, there's no downplaying the pain and suffering that the novel coronavirus is meeting out today. On the other, the danger it poses is exactly what can help us remember what really does matter. The life, care, hope, joy, courage, and love that we are also witnessing all around us as we take this thing on. There are archetypes too, and they too are calling to us in this difficult time. Let's listen to what they have to say. Let's heed their call. Let's take them seriously. One positive aspect of our current situation is that a lot of us have more free time on our hands. Many have said that podcasts will become all the more important in the coming weeks and months as a way of staying connected, creative, and let's admit it, sane. For that reason, Phil and I have decided to increase our output, releasing more extra content with no paywall. So you can expect a lot more weird studies in days to come. Of course, none of this is possible without your support, and I wouldn't want to miss this opportunity to say thank you again to our faithful Patreon supporters for allowing us to keep doing this. We'll continue to reward you with exclusive audio and text as a token of gratitude for helping us create this podcast. Well, that was a long intro. <laughs> so without further ado, here is our conversation on James Hillman's The Dream in the Underworld which, we should note, was recorded before they declared the pandemic. We hope you enjoy it. Yeah. 
there's a basic idea at the heart of this book that came up in the very first conversation you and I ever had. Really? When you came over to Graham Larkin's place. Right. You remember that? When we were chilling in his backyard? Yeah. And he made mint tea from mint leaves that he picked out of the brush pile Yeah. over at the edge of his property. I totally remember that. Uh, I actually have a very fond memory of that. It was a nice evening. It was. A nice summer evening. Yeah. But we were talking about dream interpretation. And I find there's always something a little bit phony and forced about a lot of dream interpretations. Because to me, getting a dream is like pulling a tarot card. You know, it's possible to, to read tarot cards in a very prescriptive kind of way and say, oh, the emperor means authority and the fool means a journey. And, you know, that kind of somewhat lowbrow way of interpreting tarot where you believe that there's a kind of one-to-one -one correspondence between a tarot card and the meaning that you're using in a reading. And for me, what's wonderful about the tarot is how indeterminate a system it is. You can pull out one of these cards, and these cards are just full of puzzling imagery, whether you're using the Marseille deck or the Rider-Waite or the Crowley-Harris deck. Um, and you know, you, 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 you can just look at one of those cards and let the strangeness steal over you and worm its way into your mind. And you can just remain at the level of the image without trying to make it mean something. It does mean something. It means a lot, but it doesn't have to mean something that you can necessarily put in words or array in a series of more or less logical propositional utterances. And I remember saying to you that dreams could be interpreted this way. A dream is like drawing a card. You could just look at it. You could just have this image before you and let its strangeness communicate whatever it does, but without having to, you know, make it mean something. And so there's a, a line on page 122 of Dream in the Underworld, which is the text we are discussing today, where he writes, I have to find it. It is not what is said about the dream after the dream, but the experience of the dream after the dream. A dream compared with a mystery suggests that the dream is effective as long as it remains alive. The healing cults of Asclepius depended upon dreaming, but not upon dream interpretation. That's not this true, implies, by the way. Yeah, that's not but true, but whatever. <laughs> I will, I, but whatever. I will continue, yes. and then we can maybe circle, <laughs> yeah, yeah. circle, circle back to that. This implies to me that dreams can be killed by interpreters, so that the direct application of the dream as a message for the ego is probably less effective in actually changing consciousness and affecting life than is the dream still kept alive as an enigmatic image. It is better to keep the dream's black dog before your inner sense all day than to quote unquote know its meaning, sexual impulses, mother complex, devilish aggression, guardian, or what have you. A living dog is better than one stuffed with concepts or substituted by an interpretation. And I quite like that because although I'm all about interpretation, there is no shortage of interpretations on offer in any given episode of this show. Nevertheless, it's a little bit of a map in the territory thing. You can take a dream or a tarot card for that matter, and you can 
extract concepts from it. And that on its own is not an illegitimate thing to do. But when you then take the concepts and mistake them for what the card is or what the dream is, it's almost like a changeling, like the bundle of, of hide and sticks that the fairies would leave after they had abducted a child. It's a simulacrum. I mean, this is the book to treat that question, obviously. So we're talking about James Hillman's The Dream in the Underworld, a classic of archetypal psychology. The argument is quite simple, in fact, I think. It's that Jung and Freud, the two main kind of masters of psychoanalysis, have both had the unfortunate tendency, according to Hillman, to demote dreams or kind of subordinate dreams to life so that dreams exist in order to communicate messages in one form or another to our day world kind of waking life. And what Hillman mm -hmm. is saying in this book is that you are no less living your life in dreams than you are in your waking life. So in, in other sense, you can no more reduce or exhaust a dream by interpreting it than you can exhaust, for example, a day in your life by interpreting it. It would be silly to say that, you know, my marriage means this. And once I've told you the meaning of my marriage, my marriage has nothing else to disclose. Obviously, my marriage is an right. event in life. Or, or if I say, like, the World War II was a metaphor for this. <laughs> like, that's kind of absurd, yeah. right? It doesn't mean you can't do that. But it means that there's a distinction to be made between, and this is one of the problems I have with this book, is that he's not very clear on what it is one should do with dreams at all. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that's a problem. There's a distinction to be made between interpretation and something else. I'm looking for a word. I thought the word exegesis is a possible word. Because exegesis is interpretation that never pretends to explain away the text it's interpreting. Exegesis is expounding upon, right? It's kind of a Talmudic almost to, to, to cross into another tradition. Uh, to, talking about an event without explaining the event. Interpretation without translation. And the, the Hillman's problem with modern dream interpretation is that it tends to translate the dream into the language of the day world, thereby exhausting the usefulness or purpose or nature of the dream. There's no more dream anymore once the dream has been translated. And that's this, this is quite explicit, and I think, in Freudian psychology. Is that once you've worked out a complex or whatever, a problem, you'll stop having that dream. The dream is just kind of a, uh, the, a symptom of, uh, of a, um, a knot, a psychic knot that once undone will disappear. Whereas what Hillman's saying is that we have two selves. We have our day selves, our day world ego, and we also have a dream ego or a dream self that is constituted each night and that lives our life in the underworld. He means that quite literally, even though he hates the word literal. Uh, he means that our dreams is every night we all descend into the underworld and live out events that are self-existent. They're not just referring to day world events. They have their own life. And if we're going to interpret dreams, we have to do it uh, in a way that recognizes the self-existence of the dream world, of the underworld, of, of death as kind of the, the kingdom of dreams. We'll get into all that. And so he's encouraging us to approach dreams in that light, because he believes, at uh, one part he says, that dreams are intimately connected to death, to ghosts, to the spirit world. 
And in, in fact, he says this throughout the book. He says this throughout the book. There's one sentence I can't, I won't try to find now, but he says that what we do in, in modern psychotherapy is that we deny death's dream kingdom, which is specifically how T.S. Eliot, I think, refers to, to that other world. We deny that kingdom. We deny Hades. We deny death by subordinating the dream to our day world, Herculean kind of ego. And so he's trying to restore this consciousness of the underworld to the modern era and to see psychotherapy as a way of exploring the underworld. That's kind of like his purpose, but it's, it's very ambiguous, a book. It's very hard at times to know what the hell you're supposed to do with a dream. For instance, yeah. at one moment, he says, these are the things one needs to avoid doing when interpreting dreams. Like uh, he says, uh, causalism, naturalism, moralism, personalism, temporalism, voluntarism, humanism, positivism, literalism. So basically, th there's nothing to do with dreams other than just say, I had this dream. And the minute you say, well, what does this dream mean? You're kind of like in danger of falling into one of these what like he's these day world traps that Hillman associates with everything bad with the world. At one part, he rails against oppositionalism in Jung, like this insistence on opposites. But his book on the surface looks really kind of like rooted in a deep oppositionalism between the kind of oh, day absolutely. ego and the night world that we fail to recognize. So anyways, uh, but once you kind of get where he's getting at, then I find the book really profound and interesting as a way of thinking about dreams and what dreams mean and the place they have in our lives. So what in particular do you find productive and profound? The, the connection between dreams and Hades, I find extremely rich. You know, Hades is Roman name or it's an alternative Greek name, I think was Pluto and Pluto means wealth. Um, and so the idea that Hades, the spectral realm of the dead, is also the place where this incredible wealth hides, this treasure is concealed, that only in reconnecting with the dead, with the, with the specters, can we actually find this treasure and bring it into the day world, you know, despite what Hillman would say about that. Um, that, that idea, that idea of, of each dream being a kind of like, real event, an event that's really happening in the psyche, in the underworld, I find that's kind of crucial. Of course, that's kind yeah. of, um, it's implicit, obviously, in Jung. Sometimes it's explicit in Jung, and it's implicit also in Freud. Um, what he's doing is just, he's just trying to get rid of some of the ideological constraints that you'll find in Jung and Freud. I think he's kind of just trying to get to the essence of what both of them are saying, in a way. I don't think he's really making a move against them. There's a, mm. there's a passage I'll read at the end of the book where he kind of spells out what it is he's doing. Um, he says, uh, both Freud and Jung attempted with their works to give us a positive knowledge of the psyche. In their own and different ways, they contributed to science, to knowing something about dreams, their nature, structure, dynamics, symbols, language, intentions, internal mechanisms, meanings. In contrast, this book attempts to elaborate an attitude towards dreams in which any positive knowledge would be a daylight move, wronging the dream and wronging the soul. When we believe we know the invisible, we begin on a ruinous course. We are now reaping the ignorant delusions of the last century's positive knowledge of nature, which loves to hide. He's quoting Heraclitus there. 
We thought we knew invisibles like the atom, the cell, and the gene, and off we went riding the horse of hubris, and now there may be no road back. If we believe in a positive knowledge of the dream or of the psyche, are we not riding that same horse on that same ruinous course and a century late, anachronistically approaching the psyche with attitudes that have already been invalidated in regard to nature? Essential for working with what is unknown is an attitude of unknowing. This leaves room for the phenomenon to speak for itself. It alone may keep us from delusions. Hence my stress upon two things, the dark eye that makes our brightness unsure, and careful precision in regard to what is actually there, a method that Lopez Pedraza calls sticking to the image. And uh, actually, I think I read this passage in our show on Rodney Rod- Asher. In the Rodney Asher, yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so that's to me is where he most clearly lays out what it is he's doing here within psychoanalysis. Yeah, that's a that's a particularly succinct statement of what he's about. The question does remain, what are we supposed to do with dreams? Like if any move towards claiming the dream for knowledge, that is to say for the knowledge of the daylight ego, if any such move is to wrong the dream and ultimately wrong the dreamer, then what exactly are we supposed to do with these things? And it occurred to me more than once reading this that what he really seems to be enjoining is an aesthetic, even an aestheticist kind of move. You know, an aestheticist is somebody who is going to be all about, you know, l'art pour l'art. Uh, an aesthete. Art for art's yeah. sake. Yeah. Yeah. An aesthete. You know, the idea is like, what is this poem for? Oh, well, a poem isn't for anything. What does this poem mean? Poems don't have to mean anything. Right. And you find this a lot in music because music has uh, always been very problematic for people who feel that meaning has got to be propositional meaning, then music a lot of the time doesn't seem to mean anything, right? Yeah. You can say, well, what do you want from music? You know, from a, an art for art's sake perspective, it's enough simply to revel in the beauty of the music. Uh, you're not trying to say something about it. You're not trying to analyze it. You're tr- not trying to instrumentalize your knowledge of the music in some way. It is art for art's sake. And you have the same ideas related to every art form. And interestingly, in those art forms and those artistic movements where the art for art's sake ethos is strongest, for example, in symbolist poetry you find art that is trying very hard to divest itself of any kind of conventional meaning. You know, Walter Pater's line that uh, all art aspires to the condition of music is a very aestheticist kind of statement. It's treating all art, including the art that seems to denote specific things like paintings of oranges and vases or poems about nightingales and moonbeams, you know, even in art forms that seem to denote specific things under the aspect of aestheticism, you find art that tries to get away from all of those kind of clearly denotable reference in the real world. And the end point of that might be something like the 
poetry of Gertrude Stein, or even the, uh, in a weird way, the sort of Dadaist word salads of somebody like Kurt Schwitters, where you have poetry that seems to be almost entirely divested of semantic meaning uh, and is attempting to simply perform the condition of music. In any event, this, it seems to me, is often what Hillman kind of wants from the dream, just to appreciate it, just to kind of vibe with it or dig it or feel it, but not to try and do anything with it. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. There's one moment where I'm paraphrasing, but he says like, because Freud was big on dream work, right? That was this Freud's term for what you do with dreams. You work with dreams. You use them in the therapy to try to get better. What Hillman is saying is that the dream is already dream work. And the dream work one does in the the room where the analysis takes place, on the couch or whatever, the, the work that takes place there should be a re-experiencing and deepening of the dream experience. So that it's not like there's nothing to say about the dream or it doesn't mean anything. It means as much and as little as anything else going on in life. It's just once you've kind of equated the dream with life, with part of life, when you when you see it as just another part of life, it because it becomes as complex and as impervious to final explanations as anything else in life. For example, World, World War II or your marriage. But once you've recognized that dreams have that, then they can contribute to life. In fact, mm -hmm. the more you see the dream world as real, the more dreamlike the waking world becomes. So that you, for example, you see, at one point he makes the point what we... We tend to essentialize the ego, but through dream work, we, we get to see that the ego too has its own archetypal force, and it's just one archetype among many. And you detach mm -hmm. yourself a little bit from your, you know, what Jung might have called your persona or whatever, your public ego, or your day world ego. And then you're able to start not only interpreting your dreams, but interpreting your life in mythic terms, which is what Hillman's all about. So for instance, at one point he says... When you dream of friends, like you, let's say you have a, a dream that the friends you had dinner with the night before are in. So your dream, your friends appear in your dream. Well, you know, these are not your friends. These are gods taking on your friends as masks. Yeah. But there is a God to talk about. So he's like, which mm. God is this? Like, what is going on? Who is this that pretends to be your friend or that's putting on mm. your friend as a, donning your friend as a form? So... Mm. The, as for the aesthetic thing, I think you're absolutely right that he does argue for an aesthetic approach to this stuff. However, his aims remain therapeutic. He's not Dada about it. You know, Dada is kind of yeah. would just laugh at the idea there's any type of therapy in it. But, you know, there are times where I feel as somebody who is not, you know, I'm not in the Hillman camp. I'm not in the Jungian camp. I'm just a visitor. Uh, where I feel like he's completely losing sight of the idea of therapy. Or it comes in, it almost feels like, oh, yeah, shit, I'm supposed to say something about therapeutic yeah. value of things. But it seems either half-hearted or absent-minded or just absent. Which brings me to the point I wanted to make, which is this. At one point he says, and I'm paraphrasing, that dreams are already dream work. They're already working on yes, you. They're already right. your journey. So the, the yeah. your job in the therapy is not to make the dream mean something, but to 
organize yourself so that the dream can continue doing its work, which is already happening. Mm. So the dream Mm. is already changing you. So in a sense, whereas traditional psychotherapies might tend to banish the dream by explaining it, uh, his, he's arguing for a type of psychotherapy which would facilitate and deepen the experience of dreaming and that the therapy is being done by the dream itself. It's the dream itself that is the therapy. And then the, 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 your job is to do whatever it takes, use words as whatever in order to bring the dream out, to let it act on you, to let it do its thing. That's what I take from it. It's not mm. said explicitly anywhere. Yeah. You know, I could continue my train of thought about this is a basically a statusist position. Um, there's a book by George Steiner called Real Presences. It's a really good book. Maybe mm. we should read part of that, yeah. at least part of it for, for some show. Um, in it, Steiner asks the reader to engage in a thought experiment. Well, he's basically against interpretation, or at least the point of that book is to criticize something actually quite similar to what Hillman's criticizing, the tendency of interpretation to usurp the thing interpreted. Yeah. Except Steiner is talking about art, not dreams. Uh, And Steiner asks the reader to engage in a thought experiment whereby you imagine a world that has art, but no art criticism. So the only way that you can engage with or comment upon an artwork is to make art yourself. Is he's asking people to imagine a, a republic, some utopia, in which nobody's publishing criticism or academic analyses of your sonata or sonnet. If somebody listens to your sonata and wants to respond to it, wants to engage with it in some way, it's going to be in the form of their own artwork, their own sonnet, their own sonata. And that's a really neat idea. It's an alien idea because it is actually very difficult to imagine a society in which art exists, but art criticism doesn't. Most people live in a world where art criticism doesn't exist. I know, exactly. <laughs> but if you are in the art world yeah. of, of the modern West... It's, they're inseparable. They're inseparable. It is, it is almost literally unthinkable. Um, so I find that idea very interesting in conjunction with what you just said about the therapeutic or the implicit therapeutic approach uh, of this book. Mm -hmm. Because it seems to me that what you're suggesting is an idea of not trying to strip mine the dream for some kind of advice on how to live your life as a day world ego, but rather you're challenged by the dream to your own act of creation. And that act of creation necessarily takes place in the day world and at the behest of the day world ego, but that you are perhaps in your daily life creating something, creating moods, creating perceptions, creating um, soul. emotions, soul feelings. Making. Soul making is huge creating, in him. Yeah, creating soul. Yeah, making, yeah. making a soul. Yeah. But that's a creative act that answers another creative act rather than a creative act being met with an interpretive act.
I've always felt a close uh, kinship between Hillman and Deleuze. And I, well, I won't get into it, but it's there. And I was happy one day because I was writing about that in my, my notes, planning to write something about that. When I found, I think it was Matt Segal wrote a blog post that basically made the argument very compellingly that these two thinkers are very linked. And so through Deleuze, you can see how Hillman is connected to Nietzsche. And Hillman actually often references Nietzsche. And I think that in Hillman, there's a very strong resistance to any type of ascetic take on such things. And there's an asceticism in, crit in criticism. It attempts to subtract itself from the creative flows of art in order to comment upon them from a place of kind of like almost kind of anemic neutrality, <laughs> like it's outside of yeah. it. And that yeah. is something Hillman can't stand. He, he would associate that, I think, with modernity in the capital M sense of the term, you know? Um, yes. Yeah, because for, for ages, we didn't have art criticism, but we certainly had art. So the right. Republic that Steiner uh, is asking us to imagine existed right up until what, the late 18th century, until the discipline of aesthetics was invented. Um, that's the world we all lived in. Uh, that doesn't mean that we can only, what people back then responded to sonatas with sonatas of their own, but it does mean that whatever response one had to art had to be artful. And that's what you see at a, like a rock concert. When people are dancing, mm -hmm. they're responding with art to art. That's what dancing yes. is. Uh, that's what yes. you're resonating aesthetically with an aesthetic event. And um, yes. And so I think you're right on there when you say that. I think that what he's asking us to do is to respond creatively to the act of creation that is the dream. But, That's interesting. But about the aesthetic thing, this aesthetic attitude that he's taking on in this book, I, I think you're right. Uh, in the section called Images and Shadows, which I really liked, he starts by saying that what happens in dreams is like dreams are just images. They're not icons. They're not images that have a clear semantic significance. They're not copies of something. They're self-existing images that don't represent anything. They're, in other words, the Greek word is eidolon. They're eidola. And they're all that. So even if you dream of the sun, the sun exists in the dark world of images. Even if you dream of depth, or let's say like you dream of a hole, a deep hole, the depth is an image of depth. It's like an image. It's not actual depth. So what I'm saying is that there's an aesthetic flattening that happens in the dream world that allows different things to exist on the same level, whereas in real life, we separate these things with very clear ontological categories. For instance, hmm. um, a doorway in a dream, it doesn't matter if it, where it leads, the doorway is a doorway in itself. The doorway right. has significance as doorway, whereas in life, it's always right. the meaning of a doorway depends on where it leads. And right. so the same thing happens in art. In a painting, we've mentioned this, even that example many times, but in art, everything exists on the aesthetic level. Therefore, the kind of hierarchy of, of entities that we use to navigate the day world, our waking life, disappears. And all of a sudden, you can draw a connection between things that in real life and everyday life wouldn't be connected. For instance, the crows and the color of the sky and the color of the wheat in Van Gogh's last painting, right? These things mm -hmm. that are totally separate become connectable in the artwork, just as all these different disparate things become connectable in the dream. And the act of interpretation 
in the exegetical sense that I was talking about earlier, would be one of drawing these connections between the objects, not of explaining the dream as a whole or reducing it to some kind of meaning, but of exploring the connections between things that might not otherwise be connectable. It makes things connected. It connects different things that have nothing to do with one another in order to reveal deeper hidden meanings. Hippanoia is what the, the platonic word for these hidden truths, these hidden connections that we can't access in every day, in the everyday. And this is big. The, this but, is big dream, yeah. but dreams make those manifest. Dreams and art both make those manifest in exactly the same way. So if we go with this idea of soul making, and soul making is the act of creation by which we meet the act of creation that is the dream. Right, yeah. Then does that consist of applying that same flattening that you're talking about to the world around us that we walk around in in our daylight consciousness? In my experience, that has been the case. Not that I've, I'm yeah. claiming to have created a soul or anything, although I think that on weird studies, that's basically what we're trying to do. Um, yeah, it's true. Uh, in different, That's very true. In different senses. But I think that um, I know that as someone who works in film, this is a purely pragmatic example. Like when I'm making a film, I have to flatten what I'm looking at. I flatten the set yeah. and the actor in the set. I have to create a tableau where everything exists on the same level. And that's when the image reveals itself. But mm, the image I'm creating is the image I'm creating, if I'm working on a project that I care about, is an image that speaks you know, it's not an image mm. I'm hoping you'll interpret right. It's an image that right. speaks. It just speaks. It just speaks because oh, it has yeah. all these hypnoias, all these hidden connections in it. And when you see it, like if you're a photographer or a painter or a musician and you come up with a line, a melody, you haven't explained it when you come up with it. In fact, it's the no. mystery of it that makes it interesting. And then you create the work and then the work hopefully resonates with other people. And then talking happens, you know, a lot of talking, but hopefully yeah. it's artful talking and dancing and, and engaging with it in a creative way. Yeah. I mean, this is an interesting question. How do you make a soul? What does that process actually look like? I don't know. Very concretely, I find that if you keep a dream journal, the minute you start keeping a dream journal and writing down your dreams, your dreams... Uh, you start remembering them. So you can actually literally see yourself or experience this slow coming together or kind of like coalescence of a dream self as you write your dreams down. From night to night, your dreams become more and more real and your dream self becomes more and more tangible and true and then like almost becomes kind of another you. So just that simple technique, I think, would contribute to soul making in the sense that you are becoming more and more aware of the unconscious part of your existence, right? Mm. And I, I think that's what soul making means, is becoming conscious of those things about ourselves that we're not conscious of, or at least that's one meaning that soul making might have. It's interesting what you say, it almost becomes another you. That's something that seems to be very strongly indicated in Hillman's Dream in the Underworld. Oh, yeah. I mean, something that he's saying is like the self that's sitting in the therapist's office telling your therapist about your dream, that's not the self that experienced the stuff in the dream. No, exactly. And that's a weird thought, but he ties this to a lot of different ideas of the soul that you find in a lot of different cultures around the world, the idea that there's two souls. The two soul archetype is almost universal. It's in many, many different cultures, right? The Ka and the Ba in Egypt and all that. Yeah, exactly. That's yeah. what he's talking about. Yeah. Basically, the idea that there's a self 
that you have walking around. It's the self that, dear listener, is listening to this podcast right now. And then you have a dream ego or a dream self. And that's the self to whom weird things are happening in the dream. And so if you say, as Freud did, that all dreams are wish fulfillments, you say, whose wish? It's very often not my wish. In fact, a lot of dreams, as Hellman points out, are acutely unpleasant, um, unwanted by the dreamer. But it makes more sense to think of them as wish fulfillments for the dreaming self. Right. But that's not you. And that's a very interesting idea. That is indeed another you. Yeah. But that opens up a question that I would want to ask, which is what are the relations between those two selves, the dream self and the daylight ego? There are times where Hillman seems to suggest that never the twain shall meet. He uses the metaphor of a bridge that what the therapist is doing is helping you build a bridge whereby you can travel to the night side, you can travel into Hades, you can visit it uh, as Orpheus did, for example, but not as Hercules did, no. as a kind of muscle-bound, thumb-headed brute. He has this great passage where he describes Hercules in the Hades. It's true. He, he goes down, he, he beats the shit out of Cerberus. He goes in, he's <laughs> exactly. like, I think he, he shoots an arrow at Hades. He's just like causing all this trouble. And, and Hillman says, quite frankly, like that's why Hercules goes mad. It's because he cannot live in the night world. He, yeah. he cannot abide by death, by death's dream kingdom. He can't live under those conditions. <laughs> so, so yeah, you're, you know, you're supposed to go to the underworld, but you're not supposed to go there like that, which is bringing all of your day world assumptions and all of your egoistic investments. You're not supposed to bring all that shit with you. No. But what you're supposed to do is take this strange path and you know, arguably you do this every single night when you dream. You take this odd moonlit path over this humpback bridge. You can kind of almost imagine it in your mind's eye. And you end up on the other side in Hades, this night world, this world of death and dream. The question that I have is then, what is the manner of relation between yourself this Orpheus self that travels to Hades and the other self, this other self that lives there, this dream self, yeah. this, the psyche. Yeah. Do you shake hands? Do you wave and say hi? Are you supposed to come together? Are you supposed to recognize some kind of kinship? That's one of the points in which I find Hillman to be pretty unhelpfully vague. Right. No, I, I, yeah, you're right. I think that one instance where that manner of relation becomes extremely important is in lucid dreams. He doesn't talk about lucid dreams, but mm. lucid dreams is when your day world ego wakes up in a dream. Like, right. And I had one extremely, that I've told on this show before, I had one really powerful lucid dream where I was being followed around by another me. Um, oh yeah. And it was singing. Is this the twinkly twinkling of an eye yes. dream? Yeah. And the other me was singing that song and wandering this creepy around. song. Yeah. Wandering around this kind of uh, weird um, hangar with this labyrinth in it. And I knew that if I saw it, I would die. But in a sense, I think that if we interpret this and along the lines that Hillman is suggesting here, it's that 
the, your dream self is your dead self. It's your ghost. Um, and and he, huh. he, he, uh, he describes some traditions that say that, and this is something we've all heard, at night your soul goes wandering, right? This is kind of the right. standard indigenous take on what dreams are. Is that you fall asleep, you die at night, and your soul goes off and wanders. So every night you die, and the person you are after death is not the person you are during the day. That's mm -hmm. a kind of construct, you know. Jung had useful um, archetypes uh, about the day world self. For instance, we have a persona which we really believe, like I'm JF, I'm a writer, I do a podcast. That's me. And if those things were taken away, I, w I wouldn't really know who I am anymore. I, those are my daughters. That's right. my wife. If those things were suddenly to change on me, I would be really, you know, because those things yeah. define yeah. me. They're kind of the vectors in whose field of influence I kind of coalesce. And when you're dead, you lose all that. So what are you? Well, you're this entity, you're this thing, you're this ghost, and you're alien even maybe to yourself. Um, mm. And uh, at one point he says that in Latin, dimanes, which is the word for the dead, the, the, the specters of the dead, is always plural. Even if you're talking about one person, you say dimanes, you say the, the, the ghosts of so-and-so. There's no singular at all in the underworld. Everything is multiple, including you once you're dead. So um, maybe if I were just to go by that lucid dream, I would say something like, at night, you become who you will be after you die. And maybe soul making is about constructing something that can survive your physical death. You know, I mean, that might oh, be that's a very literal thought. way of looking at it, but you, you can imagine you know, sillier ideas than the idea that through constructing this ghost, this spirit, the specter that you become at night, you are preparing for the moment where your body dies. And that thing, however, which is untethered from to your body can live on in that weird hellish place called dreams. <laughs> it's a weird hellish place, but it's a, not hellish in the sense of fire and pitchforks up your ass and, you know, all the rest of it. But it's hellish in the sense of a deep realm, a realm way down deep. Yeah. Even if you're dreaming that you're walking around on the surface of the earth, it still feels subterranean. Do you know what I mean? Yes. There's a really interesting bit where he's talking, he's disting distinguishing two ideas of underground or of, of earth in uh, in the Greek language. There's gay, which is where we get Gaia, right? Gay as the earth from which things grow, the earth and the soil in which we plant things. And then there's Chthon, and Chthon is deeper. It has no life in it. It's the underworld of the dead. It's not the mother earth kind of ground. It's the deep, deep father death, kind of like old man winter underneath, like specters in Hades kind of ground. And so... The metaphor of going down to that place, the metaphor of descent when we think of that place is essential for Hillman. It's like built into it. It is necessarily a descent into a deep place, a kind of abyss. In a way, it's kind of something we all kind of know. I mean, even if you don't believe any of this, you'll have to admit that there's something pretty spectral about dreams. Um, yeah. I've always been struck by people who believe the stone ape theory of evolution, of, of conscious evolution, like uh, the idea that... I don't, know what, I don't know what that is. The idea that art and religion came about because our primate ancestors started ingesting hallucinogens 
like mushrooms oh, and stuff. Oh, I see. Oh, I thought you said something else. Okay. Never mind what I thought you said. <laughs> the, the reason I think it's a silly theory is because we have dreams. We don't need to get yeah. stoned to yeah. go to another world. We go there every goddamn night. I mean, even Richard Dawkins probably, hopefully has dreams, although maybe he doesn't. Um, but occasionally Richard Dawkins must wake up in a cold sweat from a journey to the underworld. And it's, you can, you can say I didn't really go to the underworld, but that's still what you kind of did. Okay. You didn't mean to bring this up, but I'm going to sort of detour here. I'd, certainly Hellman doesn't talk about it, but I'm guessing that Hellman would be anti-drug. I'm guessing that he would be against hallucinogens or psychedelic drugs. I have no idea. Yeah, I don't know. You know, you said something super interesting. You know, why would we need drugs when we have dreams? And that's a very good point. And yet it is true that human beings just absolutely love getting fucked up. I mean, there's nothing human beings like better than finding chemicals to alter their consciousness. True that, and yeah. I don't need to tell the folks at home how fraught and double-edged that kind of thing can be and how uh, the profound ambivalence that society, not just our society, but societies in general hold psychoactive drugs. But it seems to me that there is some connection between dreaming and drugs, that there is some place, some nightside place that each in its own way lends access to. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was thinking about something about cannabis that's kind of interesting, that people who use cannabis habitually very often don't dream or they yeah. dream much less because cannabis suppresses REM sleep and that's the physical state that you go into to dream. And that's interesting to me because that suggests a sibling rivalry. You know, people always talk about drugs as bringers of dreams. If you read uh, 19th century French accounts of hashish, the French hashish clubs and so on. I have an anthology by Hakim Bey called Orgies of the Hemp Eaters, which is a wonderful title uh, taken from one of these lurid pieces of 19th century French writing. You know, the decadence and symbolist poets, they were fascinated by hashish. Oh, yeah. And they took massive amounts and they ate it. Ridiculously large quantities. Yeah. Um, and there is this way of talking about it as a kind of gateway to dreams, gateway to the night side, to the lunar. Opium had similar metaphors going for it. Too. Yeah. Lunar knowledge, dreamland. Right. And yet, actually, from a certain point of view, cannabis and dreams are antipathetic to one another. And what do we make of that? Is it sibling rivalry that one wants to crowd out the other? Is it, or is it something else? I think that in most drug experiences, and here the distinction between a kind of hashish trip and an opium trip might be interesting, um, is that when you take large amounts of hash, and uh, I haven't had the privilege of doing that, I've eaten some edibles a few times in my life and gotten a crazy body buzz and some kind of psychedelic effects as well. But, um, okay. When we talk about hallucinogens in general, okay. Acid, ayahuasca or whatever, you're taking your day DMT. world, you're taking your day world self into that world. You know exactly who you are when you're on these drugs. So it's like you're you a think? tourist in dreamland, but you know, uh, I, I, it's me. I'm an LSD. Look what I'm seeing. You're, you're like Hercules in the underworld. 
or at least you're, huh. you're, you're you have the ability to become hercules in the underworld you could kick the shit out of cerberus you could cause a lot of shit and that's why i think <laughs> uh, those drugs can be very dangerous um if used without the right set and setting because it's your day world self is basically the the valves open and you're seeing shit that your normal day world consciousness edits out right or suppresses or just turns away from or doesn't pay attention to whereas um with opium it's different because with opium you actually have dreams right what it does is that you fall asleep and then you have vivid dreams and the, those dreams you're you don't know you're dreaming so you're actually having like normal but extremely vivid colorful profound rich dreams um hmm. so i think that's the antagonism is very clear or the the antithesis between hallucinogenic trips and dreams is very clear they're not the same experience um it's very easy to forget a dream in the morning it's the easiest thing in the world unless you get a really crazy nightmare that fucks you up most of the time you'll forget it without even trying you can't forget an acid trip ever because mm. you were there but you weren't uh, dead. interesting so there's a that's interesting and it's interesting to think of the herculean side of modern tripping right of this kind of like brazen give me anything give it to me, I'll do it, I'll take it, attitude that a lot of the psychedelic community has towards towards hallucinogenic drugs, although there's an increasing amount of like awareness of the dangers. And but it's interesting to, to think of that movement in what I think Hillman might describe those those cultures as Herculean in that sense. They're trying, mm. they're, they're doing, they're mm. playing a dangerous game. And of course, the That's price Hercules pays is madness. And I personally know people who never came off of, uh, I know this is controversial to the pro-drug legalization world to say this, but I know people who never came off of both cannabis and LSD. Now, did they have a latent condition that it just triggered? Probably, but yeah. you know, it doesn't change anything. It doesn't change the fact that that was the trigger. So you're tempting the gods when you go down that route and that's fine. That's great do it with the awareness that that's what you're doing, you know, like, yeah, but so that, yeah, that's an important difference between the two. Yeah. Uh, there definitely are people in the weirdest fear, for example, our buddy, Eric Davis, who take drugs very seriously as a means of gaining awareness of gaining insight. Uh, mm -hmm. people talk about DMT and LSD and cannabis and so on as being entheogens, uh, as opposed to hallucinogen, that which causes a hallucination, they're entheogens, that which causes an experience of God. Right. So I guess the question is, is there a function for those things or is it really just the Herculean ego strip mining the night side, the lunar side? Oh, I wouldn't want to say that. No, I didn't want to imply that at all. I think that there's a tremendous use for these things. Incredible therapeutic and just recreational kind of mystical. I, I equate recreation with mysticism, <laughs> but like uh, <laughs> uses for these things. I didn't want to imply that. I'm just saying they're mm -hmm. dangers. Yeah. Yeah. It's often said about drugs that, you know, the set and setting thing that you're almost set up to fail on that because, you know, ayahuasca, for example, is in the indigenous cultures that developed the ayahuasca rite. There's not just social systems, institutional arrangements, you know, people like specialists, medicine men or shamans who conduct these trips and can 
be guides to the unwary. It's not just that. It's that there's these societies have an entire cosmology, a kind of down to the metal basic orientation to an idea of a spirit world within which these drugs can have a meaning. They can have a spiritual purpose and a spiritual meaning. Mm -hmm. But the argument is that what we have is capitalism. And so what drugs can only ever be in our society is a commodity to be used for one of the things that commodities are used for, to have fun. So like, do you put it in the entertainment category? In the religion category, you know, people who are thinking of drugs as entheogens clearly are trying to move it from the entertainment category to the religion category. But even the very existence of a discrete category that we call religion that you can participate in or not in good consumerist fashion, that yeah. itself is a very modern thing. So oh, from yeah. a there's an argument to be made that as much as people like Timothy Leary wanted to create the contexts and the rituals, the rites that would allow drug use to be truly entheogenic, to be truly of the spirit. Basically, that can't happen. No. We're just stuck. I think that, I know people have often, I think Daniel Pinchbeck has, I remember him tweeting something like, that every world leader should have to undertake a kind of ayahuasca experience before they take power that somehow it just naturally turns you into a liberal or something. <laughs> um, I mean, you often hear that that trip was like a religious experience and some trips are life-changing. I mean, they've done experiments on people with PTSD with uh, mushrooms. And um, I believe, I would venture to guess that it's always with the right kind of like post-trip therapy and processing that it can be extremely beneficial it can cure PTSD in, in a fraction of the time that it would take to do it um, with using just therapy or suppressing the symptoms using medication. It's, it's very, very um, effective. But I think in terms of, I think you're right. I think that, it, it, I mean, since our cosmology is capitalistic, it's only natural that everything gets filtered through that kind of ideological system or that religious system. So it's not going to change the world into kind of a happy socialist utopia. That's for sure, is what I mean. Mm. It's like yeah. capitalism is able to handle hallucinogens and survive, <laughs> unfortunately. Unfortunately. Yeah. In a way, the hallucinogenic drug is the ultimate commodity. It's cheap to make and it gives you, it costs a lot of money for Disney, like for Disneyland to get built, right? But now you can just right. give this little pill and you have Disneyland. And yeah. You know, in a way, it's hard to imagine uh, a more ideal capitalist kind of commodity than hallucinogenic drugs. And that's something we should yeah. be very wary of. And I think Eric Davis is very, very conscious of that in his writings. Right? Yeah. Well, basically what you just articulated is Brad Warner's criticism of any attempt at marrying Buddhism with psychedelic drugs. Um, Brad Warner is a Zen Buddhist writer and priest whose writings I quite enjoy. I yeah, don't always great. agree with him, yeah. but I like him. For those who are interested in Dogen, but find Dogen unreadable, which is a lot of people who are sort of interested in Dogen, there's a couple of books by Warner that I've actually mentioned in a, that essay recommendation thread that we have on the Patreon. Um, I mentioned these books. It came from Beyond Zen and Don't Be a Jerk, where he paraphrases 
some of Dogen's essays and puts them in slightly more comprehensible English. But, you know, some people might disagree with that project, but I think you have to give it to Werner that he knows his Dogen. Anyway, whatever. Uh, I'm sort of getting off topic a little bit. Werner says basically the same thing. I remember him once making an analogy between tripping on LSD and the kinds of insights that you get from years of meditation. Because it's often pointed out that those things are somewhat similar. I remember it was, uh, I, I was a late adopter of Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception. Uh, I only read that after I'd been meditating for a few years. And when I read it, I was astonished at how much what he was describing as a, was it a mescaline trip that mm -hmm. he took? Yeah, it's mescaline, yeah. Yeah, I was struck by how much of his descriptions of a mescaline trip, particularly, you know, talking about how absorbing he found the folds of his trousers. He has this really interesting riff about how fabric has always been really important in the Western visual arts tradition because it's in rendering of fabric that artists can get non-figurative. They can just deal with like pure form. And he points out that El Greco loves fabric. And it's true. If you look at any El Greco painting, you'll find all kinds of mysterious forms swarming at the margins in the fabric. Mm -hmm. It's really cool. But this insight into the strange forms imminent in fabric. Uh, I remember thinking like, yeah, you know, that kind of shit happens on the cushion where you're just staring at a wall and the wall becomes like absolutely fascinating. Um, and, you know, Warner's somebody who tripped a lot when he was younger, so he certainly knows the drug territory. Um, he's, he says, yeah, it's true. There are some similarities between experiences that people have after years of meditation versus experiences that people get because they plunked down 25 bucks and got a tab of acid. Uh, he said, but it's sort of like the difference between flying to the top of a mountain and climbing the, to the top of the mountain. He's like, you know, you climb to the top of the mountain, that means that you've been spending perhaps years learning how to do that. And then, you know, you had to deal with the mountain, not just the challenge of it, but all of the infinite particularities of the mountain, the handholds and how the rock looks and the light and the whole thing. And uh, he's like, you're going to miss all of that. If you just take a helicopter up to the top of the mountain, okay, you'll get the same view as the guy who learned to climb. But he's like, you just bought a ticket. Yeah. And this is just this capitalist shit that we do. We think that the experience is fungible, that there's some one-to-one -one relationship between the money that you plonk down and the experience that you have. It's like some things don't work that way. And meditation is one of them. That it's all harkens back to the digital versus analog thing, right? The drug yeah, is a digital experience. Right. It's like in the matrix, you know, like Neo just, they just put a cable in his brain and then he's like, I know Kung Fu. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and then he can kick the shit out of the guy who's been studying Kung Fu for 20 years. But that guy yeah. has something over him, which is the journey of learning Kung Fu, <laughs> where you learn all kinds yeah. of shit that it's not contained in the final product. Um, yes. And I think that cultures that do use hallucinogens actively integrate those hallucinogens into a series of techniques and procedures and processes and rituals that are very much like any other um, religious tradition, for example, Buddhism. Those things are just yeah. integrated into it. And I think that's important because if you look at the Ayahuasqueros in the, in the Amazon, 
they don't just take the ayahuasca and trip out and like talk about how crazy trippy it is. They're doing shit in that <laughs> world. Like they're meeting yeah. like the Jaguar spirit and talking to it about this village and their problems. They're doing shit. It's a very pragmatic thing right. for them. So um, right. to mistake the drug for uh, some kind of like instant enlightenment is seems a little crude. try and link this part of the conversation, which really just started off as an aside, but has turned into its own kind of interesting thing. Um, try and tie this back to where we started, which is thinking about dreams and thinking about this book by Hellman. So we're talking about different ways that drugs can be used more or less skillfully on a spiritual path. And uh, started this tangent by thinking about drugs and dreams as being almost like siblings and perhaps rivalrous siblings, but both of these being ways to visit the night side or the lunar side. So we're talking about uses of drugs, perhaps that we might associate with indigenous cultures that have a hallowed place for them, but we're talking about use of drugs where you're not just tripping balls, you're doing stuff, you're engaging with the jaguar spirit or whatever, like there's homework, there's a path, like these things are integrated into a set of things that you do. So that brings us back to the idea, if we're thinking in that connection, it's interesting to apply that back to dreams, to come back to dreams and think in the same way. Is there like a capitalist ethos of using dreams? Is there some older, more traditional ethos that has less to do with consumption and more to do with being a participant, like doing stuff. Do you see what yeah, I'm saying? No, I totally. It's a really interesting question. I personally think that dreams are one of the most resilient features of this universe, the most resilient to capitalism. Um, mm. I think it's, yeah. it's really hard to be a capitalist in your dreams. There's a great book called The um, 24-7 by uh, Jonathan Crary, where he talks about sleep as this implicit, tacit, huge problem for capitalism. Because when you're sleeping, you're not being productive and you're not consuming. So the idea yeah, that there's this unconscious, right. implicit goal in capitalism to eliminate sleep and therefore to eliminate dreaming, because dreams are useless from a capitalist perspective. So they're kind of like kind of a vestige of our pre-capitalist world and insofar as they are that, they are a, a form of resistance. In this book, he calls sleep a resistance to capitalism, an act of resistance. Yeah. yeah, I've heard the line, I don't know whether it's from this book or a review of this book, that sleep is a standing affront to capitalism. Yeah, exactly. That's Such a probably great from that book. But there have been attempts to capitalize on, or maybe just like to capitalize dreams themselves a movie like mm -hmm. inception which is a film i absolutely mm, yeah. detest is a way of trying to contain dreams and a kind of like techno capitalist construal of the entire universe um mm. and i won't get into my reasons because i'd have to watch the movie again but i remember really which you don't want to do yeah <laughs> I, yeah no i don't want to do exactly 
Uh, dreams are mysterious. Um, they're non-ideological. They're works of nature, as Jung keeps reminding us. They're, they're nature, mm. but they use culture. They're works mm. of nature that use culture. It's like if a plant suddenly grew a bunch of slinkies. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, whoa, it's a plant, yeah. but it's growing all these, it's like faces in the clouds, but the faces are really there, right? Dreams use yeah. culture, uh, but are themselves this natural process. There's a great um, little passage from uh, Jorge Luis Borges about in this essay called Nightmares. Very short. He says, lately, I've been rereading psychology books and I have felt singularly defrauded. All of them discuss the mechanisms of dreams or the subjects of dreams, but they do not mention, as I had hoped, that which is so astonishing, so strange, the fact of dreaming. Oh, I love that. The fact of dreaming. This is something that I often say. Actually, it's a little bit like what you were saying. Our hominid ancestors didn't need to get stoned. They had dreams. Um, if you think about dreams as a, just a stubborn miracle. And it's a miracle that every human being has and many regular animals. and many animals. Yeah. Has, uh, has regular encounters with like nightly encounters with think about it. Imagine trying to explain this to some alien that came down like, like they don't have dreams. Well, every night you go to sleep your eyes close and you're unresponsive to your surroundings, but actually you go somewhere else that's totally real, but anything can happen. And, you know, there's a basic stubborn fact of dreaming that prior to all interpretations and different types of dreams and different kinds of things that can happen in dreams, prior to all of those details, there's the stubborn fact of dreaming that itself is weirder than anything any individual dream ever comes up with. Do you right. know what I mean? Absolutely. And also another, just to add to the mystery or to the implications of the mystery, those aesthetic idola that are kind of tied to the dream. For example, the idea that dreams happen below, in the below, under us. The idea that dreams have a tremendous depth. These things that we could quote Heraclitus, as Hillman does, about the depth of the soul and the uh, belowness, the descent that is the soul. These ideas, when you just kind of appreciate them for what they're saying, they're hinting at uh, a cosmology. If we are to include dreams in our picture of reality, a kind of Norse-like idea of our world as a kind of disk floating on top of these vast depths of dreaming. And that in a sense, and it makes perfect sense when you think about it, that when you fall asleep and you're released, this was Bergson's idea of dreams, when you're released from the cares and needs and constraints of a biological existence, all of a sudden you sink back into the sea and that it is this underworld, this abyss beneath us, that is the source of this waking world. You know, this kind of inversion of the real, where in a way, dreams are not just real, they're more real than anything, right? Yeah. It's worth remembering that surrealism, the artistic movement that seeks to capture something of the dreamlike quality of dreams in art, to explore the unconscious and the irrational side of the human mind in the creation of art, uh surrealism doesn't mean somehow any less than real or below the real it's sur above the real yeah it's super real yeah and i remember as a younger person encountering 
the term surrealism and not understanding why you would call it that. Because I had the idea at the time that dreams are, you know, a sort of de facto version of reality. Basically, the scientific naturalist way of understanding dreams as things that happen to you in the day that just get jumbled together and repurposed in dreams, but there's no meaning to it. It's just sort of like the, you know, the the waste removal system of your mind. It's, right. You're taking all these residues of the day and, and bundling them up in a dream and you're setting them out by the curb so that you can wake up refreshed and carry on with your tasks. Right. Um, that would be the understanding of the dream as less than reality or yeah. as deficient reality. But that's not what we're talking about here. No. We're talking about dreams as a super reality. A super reality. Surreal. A surreality. Yeah. The coinage is French and surreal is a play on the term surnaturel, supernatural. So the supernatural. Wow, I never thought of that. Neither huh. did I till now. <laughs> um, but surnaturel is how you say supernatural in, in French. Right. So surreal right. is just transposing the word real for nature. Nature has already too much realism in it. So they like, no, just real itself. More real than real is the dream world. And it's interesting to note uh, the deep connections between surrealism and ideas of the supernatural, the occult and that sort of thing. I mean, right, certainly right. the surrealists were interested in that sort of thing, automatic writing and all that, and how those kind of tap into spiritualist ideas of channeling and seance and that sort of thing. So it's impossible to talk about dreams without moving into this kind of territory. It's just so intimately linked. And the weirdest thing, you know, that line from the Gospel of Thomas, I think it's in some of the synoptic gospels as well. Um, Show me the stones the builders have rejected for that is the cornerstone. Yeah. Well, the dream is the cornerstone. It's the little bit yeah. of magic and enchantment that we all experience. That it reaffirms when our ego is finally fucking sedated, that reaffirms the reality of magic, the reality of the strange and of the weird. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening. <laughs>